Hey, it's Sean here, agency veteran turned business strategist, Forbes business coach, and host of the Growth Code podcast, the place to be if you're looking to grow your agency with more ease and less stress. And I am here today with Simon Collard. Simon is an agency-only fractional CFO, and he has loved working in agencies for the past 30 years, like me, a lifelong learner too. And for the past 12 years, he's been working as a CFO for hire, focusing on helping independent SME agencies to grow and prosper. Simon, it's so great to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for the introduction. And today we're going to be talking about something that I really love to geek out on, which is numbers. And this is sometimes a tricky thing for creative people to to work on because, you know, people have limiting beliefs around numbers. Oh, I'm not good at numbers. I don't like looking at numbers. But let's talk about making it simple. So Mm. where should we start? Well, I think it's it's almost an accepted thing that people can, can shy away from numbers as if that's kind of an acceptable thing to do. Now, and I, I understand that, but at the same time, it's unavoidable because numbers, finances is the language of business to a certain extent. And so you can't avoid it. My advice and my approach with all of my clients is to keep it as simple as you can do because there's nothing more off-putting than a complex spreadsheet or a complex report, which you feel like you need a degree in accountancy to understand. And I see these things all the time. And I... And I get pulled into them because I love numbers. I'll geek out with numbers. But you can't do it in a half-hearted way. You have to fully commit to it. And if I feel like that as a chartered accountant with 30 years' experience, then I can understand why people kind of shy away from it. So simple. And, and I keep my reports as simple as possible because I think that's the way to get real impact, to get insight into your business. And, and in reality... A simple agency PL is three or four numbers. It's revenue. Yeah, it's it drives all agencies. What is your revenue for this month, this year, next quarter? It's staff costs. That's the key one. That's our biggest cost by a country mile. And the ratio between those two will tell you how successful your, your business is, how successful your agency is. That's you know, that's the number one sort of KPI and you need that kind of standing out in your PL. Some agencies will have freelancers. I like to keep freelancers as a separate line as well because it's a variable cost and will can be tweaked up or down depending on how busy you are, how much revenue um, you're pulling in. And then there's overheads, but I don't get terribly excited about overheads because they're ter- usually fairly constant, but they are there. And if you've got those four numbers, you've got a P&L. Um, you've got net margin, you've got compensation to revenue, KPI, which can tell you an awful lot about uh, how your agency is doing, uh, and it's really yeah. Simple. I mean, the the profit and loss just tells you how good you are at turning yeah. revenue into profit, and I think that's a a major key indicator because net margins for agencies are typically pretty bad. There's yeah. not a lot of room for error, um, yeah. so I think that is you know really really important. You've kind of really hit yeah. onto and that, I think, and I think obviously the. The way that I approach that is a, is a very simple set of four or five numbers, but then also visualize that as a. I, uh, I, I would always try to shoehorn in a donut chart in there. And if, you're, if your people costs are taking up the majority of that donut, you're going to be struggling uh, and it will squeeze your profit. Um, and so I think that combination of visual clues, uh, hopefully relatively impactful, and simple numbers 
that's the starting point. That's the entry point. You'll know how you are doing, uh, whether that's for the month of April or for the year to date. And that gives you a really good entry yeah. point into you know, building on that if you want to. Do you have a golden ratio, like a, a multiple of staff to revenue costs yeah. that people should yeah, be I mean, aiming for at least? Well, I, I remember when I started out, and that was, as you said, uh, quite a number of years ago now, that it was 50-50. Yeah, it was 50% was to be spent on people. And, and then you'd have overheads and a profit margin of 20%. So it used to be 50, 30, 20. Um, these days, I suspect it's more like 60, 20, 20. Uh, and there's a number of factors behind that change. I think the whole industry has been squeezed uh, in terms of margins. Uh, and the cute ones, uh, the good ones, have been able to absorb some of that by reducing overhead spend uh, and maintaining the margin. But investing in people has always been the biggest cost, and probably that is, takes up a larger chunk of the of the pie now. Um, sorry, there's a lot yeah. of food references in donuts and pies. It's getting late. Um, <laughs> but sixty um, percent is a decent target. It it does depend. Some some people like to go for fifty percent still. Um, some like to go for lower than that. I I think it depends on your commercial model. Um, but a rough rule of thumb. 60%. If you're doing less than 60%, you're doing really well. And the closer you get to 100%, then obviously you're struggling more. Absolutely. I think there's so many downward forces on pricing, but <clears throat> it means that we have to look at other strategies and other ways to show more value, to yeah. really present your proven processes so that you can be pricing your agency services for profit because mm-hmm. otherwise... If we, you know, if we're not making a profit, what's it all for? So I think well, it's, not, that... it's 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 such hard work that it, it it and the frustration is if it's, if it's such hard work and with so such low margins, it can be quite soul destroying uh, to do that month after month. So yeah, and everybody I know, every every agency I own, I've worked with works really hard, and they're really smart, talented people, and deserve oh, to make yeah. a profit. But it, sometimes it's just that missing bit about pricing, about um, whether that's output pricing, whether that's having a kind of a more of a varied pricing stack, as it's called, with different pricing alternatives, whether that's having a tighter handle on where we're over-servicing clients uh, and what we can do about that. There are different angles into that profitability. So I mentioned before that the, the simple P&L was uh, the entry point. Obviously, that dives off into a question. If it's a 25% margin, great. We're doing, some, we're doing most of the things well. If we're at yeah. 5% margin, then we've got some room for improvement. And then that's the kind of the jumping off point for what I do with, with, with clients is to figure out what is it that's causing us to struggle to make money? Why aren't we converting our time and our talent into a margin that we should expect? I think that there's often with smaller agencies and agencies where it's quite competitive. Um, Mm. I mean, it's competitive for everyone, but I think often I see a few common mistakes, like not charging for project management or not charging for thinking time and, and other, other things like that. So quite often you can very quickly find where the revenue leaks are and plug those because you know, a 5% margin for an agency owner, um, you could put your money in another kind of investment and, do nothing for for that kind of return 
And when you think about agency owners, the the additional hours, the weekends that they're working. And I did some research earlier in the year, and the average salary for an independent agency owner in the UK is around £36,000 a year. And in America, it's about $54,000. So you put in all those extra hours and, you know, you're, you're working for the same as your most junior member of staff. Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and you should probably sort of Google the salaries for your skill level in your local area to see what you could be earning without the hassle yeah. and worry, frankly, of, of meeting um, this month's payroll. So I, I, I do have a lot of sympathy in that case, but you, you're quite right. And you do mention, too, the, to the obvious things we are, as an industry, we are, we are terrible at charging for our, our thinking. We throw our thinking in to, 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 to win business, which is crazy. Yeah. No other profession would do that. You wouldn't say, if you're an accountant, um, you wouldn't produce a, or a lawyer or a professional. You wouldn't give away your best thinking with, from your most expensive employees free to yeah. win the execution. That makes, that makes zero sense. Um, and you, you mentioned lawyers as well. You know, when, uh, when I started in my corporate career, I worked in, in the legal profession. Don't, um, don't shoot me. I've, I've paid my penance. We're fine. We're good. <laughs> but we were taught, you know, to charge in six-minute increments. We were taught that we charge for every letter, every phone call, every email. And I'm not saying that agencies should really go that far because I think it's very difficult in, in the creative space. But we do need to be more aware of where the leaks are and what we're giving away for free. Because yeah. I always say that just clients are also very dangerous. The clients who are, could you just quickly do this for me? Could you just, it, yeah. it won't take very long. And all of those little things, the, the just things add up. Yeah. And before you know it, you've yeah. got 5% margin. Yeah, the, the, the scope creep. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's a classic margin killer it's a what i call you know, profit vampires um, um you know, people and, and we can be my own profit vampires we can underestimate uh, we can over service and that can as you as you know that can be because you know, the worst type is when we really like the client and we want to do a really good job uh, and so we push the service levels and, and don't worry so much about the margin um or you can have a particularly demanding client a really aggressive client who just who you, who you want to over-provide for to keep them happy so that you don't get the, uh, the unhappy phone call. So the, there are so many margin killers. And I think uh, my approach is twofold. One is which really is to, you know, let's, let's look at which ones they are. Let's, let's do some simple um, measurement um, and then figure out whether we're happy to over-service at that level. Um, and so I always talk about conscious over-servicing. It's, it's unconscious. We're just doing it as a matter of our, our working day and responding to yeah. it uh, yes. rather than thinking, actually, am I going to say yes or am I going to say no here? What's the best thing to do? Um, yes. And that falls down to a little bit of training and empowering of, of your project managers and account managers to, to know what's going on with their behavior. I really like, I just want to repeat that because I really like that term that you've used of conscious over-servicing mm. because yeah. when you have clients who I call them either best buyers or ideal clients, these mm. are the clients who are going to 
help you to grow the agency there is an element of nurturing and creating a wow and delivering an exceptional service or Mm. you know looking around the corner for those clients to see what's coming and what you can present to them to add even more value and i really like that term of conscious over delivering i I think that's uh that's just brings it into the light quite perfectly it is i mean because i think if you're doing something consciously there's a there's a rationale there there's a business decision for doing that's fine you can go ahead, over-service, over-deliver, because you've got a, yeah. a reason for doing it. It's when you've got a slow puncture and it's, you're not sure what's happening, but it's happening yeah. because of the way of working, the way that you've set up, and you're not doing it deliberately, but you're just doing it, that will kill your margin. Yeah, I call that opportunity cost. You know, when you're yeah. spending time on a client who, I say the squeakiest wheels need the most oil, yeah. And when you're spending time on those squeaky wheels and not, you know, looking after the 10 clients who mm. could grow the business, yeah. then um, yeah. and that's the, opportunity and cost. Exactly. That's the classic example of that, which I come across quite often, is, is when you, you, you are, you've got the low margin, but you've still got the kind of the anecdotal pressure that everybody's really busy and we need to recruit because we're really busy. And, and I'm... I'm the grumpy old man in the corner going, but we're not making enough money and you want to recruit somebody else? Surely we need to go back a little bit uh, to figure out what it is, why we're really busy. And whether that could just be a passing comment, which it can be, and that's why I call it anecdotal, or whether actually everybody is really busy, in which case we've got a systematic problem. Absolutely. (laughs) I'm laughing because I've had that conversation a few times this week, actually. But when it comes to productivity inside the team, I always think there's, there's always room for improvement. And I always like the idea of making 1% improvements wherever we can. Yeah. And I remember back in my agency days, I had read an article. I think it was a McKinsey article about how employees spend approximately five hours per week looking for documents or searching for files. So I thought, hold on, let me do the math here. At the time, I had a team of about 21 or 22. And I did the math on our hourly rate, and it was eye-watering. And so we started to put in place things to save time on looking for files. You know, where can we find the 1% efficiencies? And it's those small incremental improvements that I think I used the phrase, small, small hinges swing big doors. Well, that's actually quite a big hinge and quite a big door because that's five hours. That's I'm trying to do the maths in my head, but that's getting on for nearly twenty percent of a working week, which you pray up. Um, There's your four day week right there. Well, I was going to say, well, this is four day week, but it's also on a team of twenty people. That's probably four people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to remember that one. Thank you. Yeah, I'll try and find that article as well, and yeah. I can put that in the show notes because it was. It was eye-watering when I when I worked it out at that time. And, you know, so I always say innovation happens an inch at a time. It doesn't always happen dramatically. And if you can, as a business owner or an agency owner, work with a CFO or work with somebody, even mm. if it's an hour a week, to find yeah. these leaks and find these things from where you are now to where you could be in 12 months is yeah, dramatic. I know. I'm really glad you brought it up because, I mean, oftentimes you see um, innovation and efficiency pitted against themselves as being mutually exclusive. That you you can't if you focus on efficiency, then you're somehow you're diminishing your innovation ability. 
And I read these articles, and I just think, like, to me, it makes complete sense that the more efficient you are, the more innovative you are, can be, because you've got more time and thinking time yes. to do it. And it's, they should go hand in hand. And by the nature of who agency owners are, these are creative people, problem solvers, solution finders. So all we have to do really is look at the numbers and find some creative solutions and you can really make your business more profitable. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So tell me a little bit about um, looking forward with the numbers and what the numbers can tell you looking forward as opposed to looking in the rearview mirror. Yeah, I mean, I think I, mean, I think this is a little dirty secret of all accountants, and certainly for, for me, is that I think most accountants can do what I do. I mean, doing a P&L is second nature. We go to train to do it, and we can produce a P&L. I think my P&L is the way to go, but that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a little bit of hubris there. What I think is the real challenge for CFOs, especially in the agency world, is to give... Uh, agency owners the tools to, and the clarity about what is going to happen in the future and there are, there are a couple of ways of doing it one of which is obviously to to have a, a very good revenue forecast a clear revenue forecast and to be clear that only confirmed projects go in there so that you know what you your worst case scenario is um, knowing what your revenue is going to be and then knowing what your break-even point is then will give you that kind of okay what's happening next month that's you you have a pretty good idea how the month is going to turn out building on that you would all i would always advise that you have a pipeline whether that's a spreadsheet or or hubspot that is sort of mirrors the sales funnel so you know how things are coming through so that you're beginning to look forward and going okay i've got a revenue drop off in months two three and four what's in the pipeline and how far do I need to dig into the pipeline to get to my target uh, yes. And that's a really way, that's a really neat way of focusing the mind. And I think most agency owners, mm-hmm. again, are fairly goal-orientated. And if I say to them, we need to find £20,000 in, in three months' time, that's the kind of clarity of instruction and, and purpose that, that actually they'll respond to. And they'll, they'll, most times they'll find that and more really quickly. Yes, because I, I just I wish I'd met you 15 years ago, Simon. Because <laughs> when I was on that um, feast and famine roller coaster that agency owners know all too well, mm. I became exceptionally good when I hit the bottom of the roller coaster mm. at finding the sales. But if you just had somebody to speak yeah. to, like yourself, and you could say, "Okay, this is what's happening now. This yeah. is." what we need to look at in terms of the pipeline, yeah. I think there would be a lot of less, a lot less Pepto-Bismol going down my... <laughs> yeah, a lot less stress. And the, and the, the, the third track, so it's, it's confirmed revenue sales funnel. And then I think the one which I'm, I'm exploring more and more these days is measuring marketing activity. Uh, and by that, I mean sort of so that we're almost going six months back and sort of and thinking, we're now doing the sort of things which will affect us, affect your revenue mm-hmm. in three months' time, in six months' time. And so mm-hmm. we are I'm working with a number of clients to sort of start measuring yeah, um, what leads are coming in from which channel, uh, what marketing events and campaigns are we are doing and how successful they are. 
then measuring sort of the number of proposals going out and the number of proposals that are being won so that we can be, begin to build up a picture of what a good month in terms of marketing the sales looks like. And it will help flatten out any drops in revenue, I suspect, because if you have that constant attention about stuff which is going to affect you in six months' time, you're not going to react to a bad month happening now. Or, yes. the, or the odds of a bad month happening now will decrease because this is, a, this is the secret that accountants will normally never tell you is that we can't do anything about the P&L, really, this one. It's, it's there. It's yeah. done. You know, we've, got a, yeah. we've got people to pay. We've got rent to pay. We've got, and we've got a certain amount of revenue to come in. What can affect you know, that month was stuff we had done six months before in terms of being really effective at getting out there and getting yeah. our marketing in front of people, getting our message, our proposition in front of people. And so I have this kind of joined up, hopefully joined up view that if you get your marketing and your sales and your revenue and your pipeline and your forecast kind of aligned um, with the same targets in terms of the revenue target for the year or, or the number of new um, number of pitches that you need to win, whatever they are, that that just takes the pressure down a little bit because you'll, you'll, you'll know that you're doing the right things and that the odds are you might have the odd bad month, but having one bad month in 12 is okay. Exactly. Five or six is not okay. And those results are just reflections, as you said. And I want to add another secret to that because I always we're say... Sharing. We're sharing. We're sharing. We're going all in. <laughs> TMI. Yeah. I always say that the secret to raising your day rate, the secret to exponentially increasing your pricing is to have a full pipeline. Yeah. Because it gives you the confidence and you're not yeah. operating from a place of scarcity and operating from a place of I need to win the next contract because we're in the you know, we're in the dump. Yeah. And also you get to pick the, the the leads that you go after or you get you get to qualify the leads better, which oh. will help you to increase your conversion rate just by qualifying better. So there's literally no downside to tracking these numbers and to looking no. at the profit. No. And having 100%. an accurate forecast. Yeah, 100%. Because I think, and we all know it, that if we're writing a proposal and we're coming to the price bit, whether we do that at the, the end or the beginning, we all know that little voice which says, maybe I can just discount this because I need the work. Mm -hmm. And it's there. And we should acknowledge that. If you've got a full pipeline and your forecast looks healthy, no, this is the price. There's yeah. nothing more powerful than saying, this is my price for doing this. Yeah. And if you sort of yeah. discount yourself, you can be sure that they'll push for a bigger discount as well. Oh, absolutely. I think you have to give yourself room to, to maneuver in, yeah. in that pricing and the psychology of it. I think yeah. it's really important just to um, repeat a couple of things that you've just said, because this is something I really want people to hear. Having an accurate forecast of actual projects mm. and having a separate forecast mm. of your pipeline yeah. is really important. I think that's the key word there, isn't it? Having separate yeah. forecasts for those don't, two things. Don't cross the beams. Never cross the beams because you need to have a clear idea about your worst case scenario, which is confirmed work. The pipeline may or may not happen. Um, and there's a lot of discussion around whether you have a weighted figure. I'm I'm slightly old-fashioned in the thing, in the sense that I think that you know 
pipeline is either going to be won or lost. It's binary. Um, I'm much more comfortable with saying this is where we are. This is where we need to be. This is how much of the pipeline we need to win. Um, and keeping it very simple. So 100% keep them separate. If you, if you, if you mix them, you'll be confused and you lose that clarity. And as soon as you lose clarity, then it loses impact and probably the effectiveness of it drops by 50%. You also slip into that false sense of security mm. when you see a, see a pipeline and you think, oh, the pipeline's looking good. But actually, no, there's a forecasted pipeline and you need to do your follow-ups. You need to be nurturing the leads and chasing yeah. and trying to well, close things. This is especially true when you're running a, a, a decent-sized agency or even a, a small size, because you do not want forecasting to reflect people's personalities because you'll have a mixture of pessimists and optimists. The optimist will say, I've had a conversation with a client and they've promised me this, this project. It will start next month and it will be £20,000. That's a conversation. That's the, a lot can go wrong on that. And so you want to take out the kind of the optimism, the pessimism out and have some rules and just say, if it's confirmed, you have to have kind of written permission, written confirmation that the project is starting at an agreed price. Um, if you if you include if you have one optimist in there, they'll throw it out. Mm-hmm. Likewise with the pessimists, because they're probably a little bit too cautious. With clear yeah. rules about what goes in there, written confirmation is ideal. You know, we, we've talked we've talked about those kind of risks um, of mm. the pipeline and p- potential work versus actual work. Mm. The other thing that I want to just talk on because it's brought up a trigger for me. <laughs> you talked about the the pessimists and the optimists um, is I want to talk about existing clients Mm. because I've had a couple of clients recently where more than 70 or 80% of their revenue was tied to less than 20% of their client base. And I myself had a similar situation where we had won some retainer business from two, two clients and it was, just under under 700k which was a huge proportion of our revenue and within the space of two months both of those clients pulled the contracts at the same time and I just remember how the world fell out of me and I just thought the the floor just disappeared and I I didn't I didn't know what I was going to do or how I was going to recover and what percentage Let's talk ratios of clients yeah, yeah. retained well, work well, because first, I don't like retainers. Yeah. First of all, let me let me um let me offer my retrospective sympathy because that's a terrible situation to, to, to be in. Um, great lesson. It is. I mean, it, again, it, I'm going to caveat this by saying it, it probably depends on what type of industry you're in uh, as to the sort of the size because in one of the, the sectors I work in, which is design and builds, you, you are inevitably going to get a little bit of, of spikes when projects are, are fairly full on in the build phase. Um, the, the classic one is having, no, having your top five clients making up 60% of your revenue with no one client being bigger than your profit margin. That's the... Okay. That's a, it's a nice rule. It's a nice rule if you've got a twenty percent margin. If you've got a five percent margin, a little bit harder to, to to implement as well. But the 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 reason for that is you don't want to lose your profitability from one phone call. Yeah. 
So, so it's a nice position to be. Now, just following up from that, it's not always possible that because we're not going to walk away from a big client because if we lost the client, then it would be bad. What I would say is a couple of things, one of which is you've got to mitigate the risk. So, you know, again, it's a donut chart. If your donut chart has got 70% of your revenue coming from one or two clients, you have to take some mitigating steps because clients do not love you. They will leave you at some point mm-hmm. if it suits them or the CMO moves on. So you need to build up your cash buffer so that you, build, you buy more time to react. It's vital. The bigger the cash buffer, the longer you have to recover. Um, you also need to accept that you need to invest when you're making money. So if you're making good profit margins off the back of one or two big clients and your margins are good, invest in marketing, whether that's a marketing executive or mar- or, or or outreach or impro- improving the SEO on your website or doing more events. You've got to invest to build up because you need to build up that pipeline and those clients so that you are less dependent on them. Um, and then I suppose the other thing is to you know, make sure that you're contractually, you're, you're, you're as watertight as you can be. I do see an awful lot of people with fairly weak contractual obligations. Now, if you can get a, a, a termination period in there, the longer the better, and that obviously is, would help with retainers. Um, but if your client can walk away with a month's notice, then... It's not a great deal of safety there. So those those three things are probably the best things to do. And those are the roller coasters. And I think you know, if you're making good money off the back of one or two clients, you have to diversify before you have to diversify. Because yeah. Yes. And I've seen I've seen yeah. one I've seen one of my clients way back. They were basically an outsourced department for an automotive company and then the automotive company decided to pitch and go and actually decided to go in-house with it and the company had no option but to fold and so um it is a real and present danger so you need to be honest about how dependent you are i like the advice that you've shared there as well about having a cash buffer I always used to aim for six months, but realistically, it was always around three months. And I think that a cash buffer is an absolute must. And there's financial systems that you can put in place to manage your cash. Because mm. profit and cash, these are not the same things. No. No. I mean, I think yeah, it's, it's – I always get – I always – this is, again, is a, is a cliche of mine, but, again, it, it, it's true, is that is – that, if you've got a cash flow problem, the odds are that you do have a profitability problem, though. Um, and if you are a profitable agency, you should generate cash. If you're not, then something is going wrong somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so this is where I, again, I always talk to my clients about the agency model, the 60-20-20 split or something along those lines. But then what do you do with the profit is another question and that's when they can get muddied in terms of dividends in terms of tax in terms of investments in terms of return for the shareholders as well and possibly bonus schemes as well so i think fixing cash flow most times is about fixing profitability 
and having some mm-hmm. discipline about cash management. You, you, you can't solve a cash flow problem, I don't think, without sorting out your profitability problem. I'm so glad you said that because my bugbear is when I hear agency owners say things to me like, we've been told that we should set up retainers because it will help with our cash flow problem. And that's just a Band-Aid for a deeper problem, which is profitability. And often agencies, if they don't have the business model for retainers, retainers are really resource intensive to to man and to operate. And so it's not going to actually help the problem because you have a higher cost to deliver retainers. No. No. I mean, mean, retainers can be good. Uh, They can be bad. It depends how how you manage them. But if they're unprofitable, they will be a drain on your cash flow. You know, it's, yeah. um, it needs to be a really strategic business model that's set up with the right yeah. systems. Yeah. yeah, and you have to have the right people and you have to have the right management approach to it and the tools to manage it. And also to you know, know when you're consciously or on subconsciously over-servicing it. Because consciously over-servicing. It's very easy with a retainer to just to, to slip into over-servicing because they're a retained client. Yeah. And you need to keep them higher, happy. Um, again, go back to: Do you need to? And I, I always, I always, again, try to take a more. I'm always trying to figure out ways of not doing finance, which is. Um, um, but if you're looking at a client, I always look at the profitability because I am who I am. But also, I also want to look at the outputs. You know, are we outperforming? You know, what can we figure out the ROI on what we're doing? Would be ideal. Is the client happy? Yes. Are we happy? These are important things to think about when we look at uh, clients, especially retained clients, because you have to have iron discipline with retained clients that we have booked out. We've allowed 50 hours this month, and this is what we need to achieve for the client in those 50 hours. Have we matched those two up as close as possible? If you can match the outputs with mm-hmm. the time, great. But you do need talented, strong-willed people to do that. That's where the slippery slope is because you can end up over delivering to keep that retained client happy because that client starts to go, Hey, I pay you for 50 hours. What have you done this month? Yeah. And I think that is kind of leads me on to the, the golden unicorn of value based pricing, which yeah. I don't think is, I don't think any agency is necessarily going to have all of their revenue in the value space until they are famous like Ogilvy or McCann or, you know, the really big guys. And so you have to get really good and you have to train your team to get really good at showing value, not just trading time for money. That's a skill to develop is is showing value. It's something I get a little bit passionate about, as you can tell. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, value pricing is fascinating and and quite challenging. It's not an easy option for... People. And I think it's a process. I genuinely think it's a process. And, and there are some simple steps you can make along the way uh, rather than leaping. Because I don't think you can go from a kind of a time and materials to a value price-based system. You need, to, you need to follow the process. And I think how far you get will depend on your clients and, the, and how talented your team is at learning and adapting to the new way of thinking. But there are some simple there are some signposts along the way. I think outputs is a lovely, for me, is a very simple way of framing what we're doing, especially for retainers. What is the output? You know, whether it's, I don't know, whether it's lead generation, whether 
it is about likes, whether it's about engagement. There's got to be some, what is the measure? Again, I always go back to the measure of success. How do we prove the client? We've done, you wanted us to get this. We've delivered twice this. We have delivered this. Um, It's also very handy for for negotiations if you're not value pricing. So you can say, actually, we have over-delivered. and the, the, yeah. one, of the, one of the steps along the way is to think about the impact on your client's business. Now, I, I haven't got there yet, but I'm working with one client and, and I keep talking to them about, about, because I think they're perfectly situated to figure out the ROI of their business. Um, and if they can do that for a particular market sector, they can, mm-hmm. they can prove that they are generating X times the amount of revenue for the client as the as they're costing that to me is a perfect um business case to say actually if you double your fee and we double the input we can have an even bigger impact on your revenue and and there'll yes. be somebody like me on the other end going that makes sense to me why wouldn't i do that absolutely i a few years ago i did some training with negotiators And one of the things that just stuck in my mind was that when negotiators go into a deal, one of the things that they always have prepared is their validations for their price. And so calculating the ROI for a client is a perfect example of a validation for your price. And so I just love that. I think if you can start tracking the ROI on projects for clients and keep a dashboard or keep a spreadsheet somewhere so that when you go into those pricing conversations and clients do ask you for a discount because sometimes they do and that's their job to get the best deal that they possibly can but we can say no this is our price because this is the ROI that we're confident that we deliver yeah and we work up to a quality and not down to a price that's my favorite term that's a good term that's a good term but I think I mean I think it's not always uh, it's not always possible, and one of the biggest hurdles to value pricing is sharing of information from the client side. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to identify the clients who want to work with you um, yes. and not treat you as a supplier. And so, if you if you can identify you know, that niche and those clients that are willing to be open and share and go on the journey with you, then I think value pricing will work really, really well. You've got to have yeah. that. You've got to have that trust, and I think that's really. That's quite a difficult one to get from, from say, from pitched trusted advisor really quickly. You have to earn that trust, I think. Absolutely. And we all have to start somewhere. So I think mm-hmm. that the, the time and materials is always a good place to start. But then if you know your ROI, you can start to add margin onto your pricing yeah. because yes. you've got the confidence, you've got the pipeline. So there we have it. That's how your P&L, how your accounting numbers links to marketing and sales and your pipeline and just profitability. It's all linked. And I think you've, uh, you've beautifully yeah. put that together with loads of golden nuggets in this. Well, there, in this there, there, there is a thread which runs through that from marketing and sales. And I think, I think we, we do sometimes put ourselves in silos and I think accountants are classic examples of, especially in agencies, we sit in the corner and we, t- we add up the numbers and, you know, we have to be, we have to outreach, we have to talk to people, we have to talk to marketing and sales, and we have to get everybody uh, talking the same sort of language um, and understanding that, you know, we're all there to, to, to make our agency a success and we got, we've all got a role to play. 
Absolutely. Keeping an eye on the prize, which is profit. Um, I have to just say to anyone who wants more information and lots of tips about this to follow Simon on LinkedIn and also to check out your tips and guides at novemberfridays.gumroad.com. And I will put a link to that as well because, you know, this stuff can be simple, it can be fun, and it can be really pivotal to driving a profitable agency and having more freedom and financial prosperity, which is what every agency owner deserves a whole lot more of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, profit gives you choice. Profit is, is, is not a dirty word. It's what we're here for. Uh, it gives security. It gives choice. And it's, it enables um, an awful lot of good things to happen. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, there's so many more things that I wish we could dig into a little bit more. And so maybe we'll have to come back and do another episode. But that has been absolutely fantastic, Simon. Thank you Thanks so much. Really, I've, for I've really enjoyed time. that. And I'm always happy to talk about agency finances with agency people. It's one of my, it's my favorite thing to do. High five. Thank you for listening to the Growth Code podcast with me, Sean Lennigan. If you're ready to crack the growth code for your agency or consultancy business, then DM me on social media, the word growth, or email hello at workwithshawn.co.uk. Let's see how I can help you navigate this wonderful, crazy journey of being a business owner and pave your path to permanent profits.